We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another very special episode of Podcast and Chill from the Veterans Minimum Podcast. Of course, today we have a very special guest. His name is Eric Crocker. Eric currently breaks down DBs and wide receivers. He has a podcast. He's verified on Twitter. Got that blue check. You know what I'm saying? Um, He also is a big arena football uh, former player. And he also had a cup of coffee in the NFL. Um, today, we're going to talk to him about his journey. Uh, he took a journey that is not often traveled in the world of football. Very interesting journey. So we're going to talk to him about that and break down some wide receivers and DBs. So uh, without any further ado, welcome on the show, Eric Crocker. Thanks for coming on, man. Oh, uh, man. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. So I, I like to get started. I'm a storyteller. So I like to get started uh, right at the beginning. Uh, you grew up in Stockton, California, out there on the West Coast, um, and you were a sports guy from very young. Um, just give the people a, a little background of what it's like growing up in Stockton and uh, how important sports is and was to you when you were growing up. Yeah, you know, sports are huge. Uh, you know, it's always been a huge part of my life. You know, like a lot of kids, you know, growing up, single mom. Um, my dad was in and out of jail on drugs, things like that. Uh, I think sports was uh, a sort of an, an, an outlet, you know. Um, we didn't really have the most money, so I, you know, was kind of really inconsistent playing, like, team sports. So I played, like, one year of Pop Warner. Um, I played, like, you know, one year of flag football. Um, in my, yeah, my team sports, like, you know, growing up was really inconsistent. But what I did do a lot was, we played in the hood, right? We played in the streets. We played at the park. Um, that was a huge part of definitely my early development. I think it, it helped me a lot. You know, it made me it made me tougher. Um, you know, and you, you especially in Stockton, growing up in Stockton, like we have a high crime rate. 
like one, I'm pretty sure one of the highest crime rates in America. Um, sometimes it's like top ten in, in, in crime in all the United States. So, um, you know, kind of having that type of outlet in sports, it, it helped me, you know, tremendously. And it kind of um, let me know, hey, you know, I think I'm kind of good at this and I don't have to deal with what these guys are doing at the park. Uh, a lot of my buddies, you know, game bangers and, um, you know, just Crips, like, they, you know, they just grew up all around me. So um, I was kind of associated with that, not, not in the sense of, like, where I'm the one gangbanger, but, like, you know, just all my friends, everybody that I grew up with, um, most of them were in that type of lifestyle. So um, it's easy to kind of get pulled in. Luckily for me, I had sports where, you know, I kind of, saw something a different path that I, I wanted to go down in where i grew up too uh there were some gangbangers but i i definitely had an option like there was a group where the where there was gangs and then there was a group of the kids who were doing their thing in school and then there was a kind of a group of the kids who were kind of into drugs and things like that what was it sports that really kept you out of that gang lifestyle yeah um i, I think so well it was sports and it was like the gangbangers <laughs> you know what i'm saying so like you know, i'd be from fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, you know, I, I played at the park literally probably every day. And um, and a lot of times it was like, hey, man, don't be like me, you know. Like, you're good at this basketball thing. Like, you need to stay on that path. Like, you know, you don't need to do these type of things. So just kind of, you know, hearing them. And really I think the ultimate, the ultimate thing that kind of, like, steered me away was seeing people get shot, you know. Mm. Um, people I knew get shot. People I knew, you know, getting busted for – you know, possession of firearms and things like that and going to jail and they're like, you know, that, that's not, that's just not something that I want, you know? Uh, so I think even more so than, you know, sports, I think just actually seeing what happens, what comes from it. Um, you know, my, my grandma had a foster son, um, and, you know, he was shot in the head and murdered, you know, by people I knew. So, you know, just kind of, um, seeing those things and it not just being something I see on TV, like I'm seeing it in person and like it's all around me because I, I literally live right across the street from the park, um, you know, 10 steps uh, away from it. So I, I was there every day. And I, I saw everything from, you know, smoking weed, drinking alcohol, um, you know, playing sports and, 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 and game banging shootouts. Like, you know, I, I just, I like literally saw it all right across the street from my house. So yeah, you had that you had that front row seat. That that definitely you made the right choice. Uh, especially in, in hindsight, you can see that you definitely made the right choice. But you had more than just the choice of gangbang or or something else. You also had the choice between sports. Uh, back in your back in your high school days, you ran track, you played basketball, you played football. Uh, what is it that drew you to football over those sports? Football is different, man. I mean, I tell people all the time just the the, the locker room the just the, the, the feeling of it. Um, you know, basketball was my first love, but football, there was just something about it that just drew me in. And, and um, you know, basketball, I think I went through, like, some politics early on. You know, I was good. Like, I, you know, I can hoop. But, I don't know, a, coaching, a coach didn't like my playing style. And, and instead of pulling me aside and you know, working with me on certain things, it was just like, well, why, you know, he would just kind of talk down on me. So I, I, I didn't really like that. And I was really a type of person. Like, I'm I'm very like, open, coachable. I've always been that way. I take in, um, you know, uh, constructive criticism very well. And, um, you know, just kind of hearing the coach talk about me, a head coach, you know, the, the head varsity coach is over all the programs. So I was on JV and I was starting, and I was doing, you know, a solid 15 points a game. 
And he would always tell my coach, like, why are you starting Crocker? You know, he he doesn't exhibit the type of basketball that we want. You know, I was more like streetball a little bit, but only because, remember, you know, I didn't grow up playing organized sports. So I just did what I did growing up at the park, and it was working, but it just wasn't the style that they want, that the head varsity man wanted. So that kind of pushed me away from basketball, just dealing with that whole thing, that whole situation where like, man, I, you know, I'm playing well. Why, why, you know, why does he still not like me? And if he doesn't like me, why didn't he just come and talk to me about, hey, um, let me work with you on the side, you know? Um, football, it was just, I don't know, it was, you know, my brother was a good football player. I think that really motivated me to, to, to play. Um, my uncle, who was probably my only really good father figure growing up, I, I had my stepdad, but he kind of came around a little bit. Later, while I was young, but he was working like graveyards, so he was kind of there, but he wasn't there. So my my uncle, he he played uh, football, he played college. And that was he went to Division three school. Um, had a bunch of offers out of high school, but um, didn't have the grades and stuff. Um, but he he was the only person that I knew that went to college. Like I didn't know anybody else that went off to college. So um, that was somebody that I looked up to, and I didn't want to do like him. I wanted to do like my brother. So that kind of, I think that also drew me more to football. So, you know, I want to talk to be like them. So as you said, like you, you wanted to play football and you had a chance to play football in college, first at Modesto Junior College, uh, where you ran track again and where you played basketball uh, and where you played football. So you were all over the place, junior college. Let me ask you a question about junior college, because. Uh, when you see all these things on TV, it's really a cutthroat place because everyone in junior college usually is someone who's trying to go for a, a bigger stage, which you eventually got to. Uh, but tell me what the, the situation is like in junior college. A lot of young, hungry kids. What's it like playing there? Yeah, well, like I, I actually went to a, another junior college first. So out of high, out of high school, I went to Delta College, which is a junior college in my hometown in at that time, um, when I first got there, they were ranked seventh in the nation. Mm. And we went on to have a bad year. But I think they're part of junior college. There, there's two things, right? There, there's one, which is what like you see on, say, um, uh, what's that show called? Uh, Last Chance You. Yeah, yeah right? that's exactly what I'm thinking about. <laughs> Where, you know, you, you have Last Chance You, and that's not what California uh, junior college football is. Um Last Chance U is, you know, those are kids that are on scholarship. Um, like, you know, those schools get to offer scholarships and things like that. So they get to bring in, like, the best players from, you know, all over, uh, you know, recruit them to come to this spot in the hopes the game dies out because they have a bunch of talent in one spot, right? But, you know, they're living in dorms. Their housing, their food is taken care of, right? You know, because they have meal plans and things like that. I think that's an even better situation than what you see in California, which is there, there are no scholarships. So the only, the, so you either go to one that's probably in your hometown. And if not, yeah, if you leave, you have to be prepared to pay for, uh, housing, um, out of your pockets, pay for your food out of your pockets. And you have to hope that, Hey, hopefully my, my, uh, financial aid takes care of some of, you know, these uh, fi- uh, financial uh, things, hardships that I might have. Um, and also, you know, like there's no meal plan or anything like that. So I know 
by you know going back to Modesto Junior College, I used to keep peanut butter and jelly in my trunk, and whenever I got hungry, I would eat that. So I, I think they even have a better on that chance view than what a majority of guys go through in California, especially if they go somewhere that's a little bit away from their actual home. Um, I, I think the biggest thing for for me and the things I had to realize was, I, you know, in, in high school, I struggled academically, um, not because I was, like, stupid, but just because I was uh, lazy, right? Um, I didn't have a parent pushing me to do better academically. So my junior year of high school, I only played five games because I was ineligible the second half of the season. My senior year of high school, I only played five games because I was ineligible the first five games. So, you know, when I went to junior college and now, you know, I still now at junior college, you really don't have anybody on you about your grades or anything like that. It's, you know, if you go to class, you go to class. If you don't, you don't. So I flunked out right away at 18 years old. And um, you brought up Modesto Junior College. Like, that really wasn't until three years later. Mm. I, I was out of I was out of school for three years. I had a son at 19. Um, I was working regular, uh, random jobs. Like, I, I worked at uh, Babies R.S. Um, I worked at, like, a warehouse. Um, when those things didn't work out for me, um, I turned to some things in the street. Um, probably did some things I didn't, wasn't supposed to do and, um, myself. Uh, my parents actually went to jail. He, he's like my brother. Um, he went to jail for two years. And it wasn't until he got out where he was like, hey, man, we, we don't need to be doing those things. We need to be, you know, playing ball. So that was when, at the age of 21, I went to Modesto Junior College. And they helped me get back on track academically. And I had a different type of focus because, you know, I just wanted to at least get an education so I could tell my son, like, hey, you need to get an education. You know, you need to take it serious. Because nobody ever told me that. It takes and, a lot. Um, that was the reason why I went to Modesto Junior College. And uh, it, it was cool there. Um, I could tell that they cared about me. And, um, they wanted to see me do well. Um, I was a hard worker. Definitely more mature than when I was, you know, 18 years old. And um, from there, I was able to get a scholarship. It takes a lot of balls, man. I got to say this, like, straight up. Because I know that I'm... I come from, from Queens, so I have a bunch of diversity in my life, and I teach in the South Bronx, so um, I see a lot of kids who are really talented at sports but flunk off because of because of grades. I saw in my high school, we had a baseball team that was nationally ranked every year until the report cards came out, and then all the best players would flunk off. So you see, you see it a lot, and it takes, it takes a giant amount of balls to go ahead and, and get back into football at 21 years old. That's that's pretty that's pretty special, um, right? Especially at junior college, you know. Exactly, like, especially you know, nothing, especially. Nothing guaranteed, but uh, you know, I, I I think what what helped me was going through all those different things and and you know working um, these jobs, which I knew weren't for me. You know, I knew working in the warehouse, like man, that's that's not for me. <laughs> you know, so I think you know doing those things for a few years really helped me. Um, focus in on what exactly I think a lot of kids now I talk to kids and it's like well I just want to get a job and dude you have your whole life to work right you don't have your whole life to be able to you know kind of do the right things now and go off to college and fortunately for me I was able to get back on track but that's that's a rare situation most people don't most people once they fall off they just fall off and they never get back into it not only did you get back on track uh, while at Modesto Junior College 
You went for one year. You got your associate's degree in arts. You were Golden Gate first team all track. And you made the dean's list in summer 2009. So I think it's really a, a like you are really a, a shining example of, you know, a lot of these kids, they don't they don't have an opportunity. And if they're just given an opportunity and a little attention and a little love, like what could happen? Like de- from failing off to dean's list just because you got a little attention, that it, it just shows. Yeah, you know, they push me. I mean, <laughs> I mean about the dean's list, choice. My, my grades were so bad in the previous school that, you know, I had to get straight A's. And if I, if I didn't get straight A's, I wasn't going to be able to play. So that kind of, you know, knowing – I got a card that's loud passing by right now. <laughs> but um, knowing now what I really want and just, you know, now it's just like, all right, all right Eric, like, there's something you want to do. You just have to do it. So when they said, hey, you have to get straight A's, you have to take this amount of classes and these are things you have to do. Um, some of them, they, you know, they helped me along the way in. But I had to do the work. There were a few, though, that I wasn't going to get any help from the teacher or anything like that. So I had to, be, you know, be more initiative, um, ask for help, um, ask, you know, hey, take notes, study. Like, I had to do those things. And ultimately, you know, yeah, making the games base for the first time in my life, you know, it paid off. Well, yeah, for sure. And it paid off all the way to you getting a scholarship to the University of Arkansas at Monticello. That's a Division II team. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about playing corner. First of all, you're listed at 6'2", 195 in your playing days. That's pretty big for a corner. I think right now you see corners getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But back then uh, in 2011 or so, 62195 is big for a corner. So what drew you to that position of corner, uh, particularly when you played at the University of Arkansas at Monticello? Yeah, that's the thing. You know, I, mean, I made the decision in 2005 to play cornerback, right? And um, the reason why was, you know, when, when, when the junior colleges were coming and they, they wanted to get me, I would have the offensive coach come me one day, and then I would have the defensive coach come to me another day. You know, I had the ability to play receiver or cornerback. And, and I chose to play uh, cornerback because it was something different. You know, there weren't a lot of cornerbacks that looked like me. And also my brother played cornerback as well, and obviously I wouldn't be like him. So. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was like, okay, I, I, I'm a legit 6'1". I'm, I, I know I'm listed at 6'2", but I'm a legit 6'1". And I was like, okay, be a 6'1 corner where I'm different and I have something, you know, different to offer. Or be a, you know, 6'1 receiver where – they all look like me, and I don't. I don't separate myself from any way, you know. Uh, so ultimately, that was my decision. Uh, that was the reason why I made the decision to play corner was because I, I knew that it was something where, all right, th- this is going to separate me, and this is going to give the team, whatever team I go to, something different that they probably don't have. Um, I know it caught on later, you know, with the whole Seattle Seahawks team with the bigger corners, and I think that helped me get to the NFL. But um, yeah, starting off, it was just. Uh, I think this might separate me from other guys because I look a little different. So you played one year at the University of um, Arkansas at, you're at Monticello. Sorry, say again. I played two. I played two years. There. Oh, you played two years. Okay, so they have you listed for 2011 here, but so you played two years there. You had a pretty, you had a really good senior season in 2011, um, and yeah. so after you graduate from there, obviously um, because of you, because of your journey, you didn't. You're not taking the 
direct route to professional football. So you had to go another way as well. You sign on with the San Antonio Talons of the Arena Football League uh, after you graduate um, as an undrafted free agent. So a lot of people know what it takes to get to the NFL. You know, they go through the combine, all this stuff. You, on the other hand, uh, is, is the Arena Football League. You went there. So give the people a little insight who don't know. What's it like trying to get into the Arena Football League? What's the whole recruitment process like? What's the tryout process like? Take us through what it took to get you from the University of Arkansas at Monticello to the San Antonio Talents. Well, I, I was fortunate um, to have someone that knew me, and you know, he reached out to me, and he said, hey, he, like, he randomly was going to be a director for snowboard on the arena team. I didn't know what type of arena team it was. I didn't know anything about it. I just knew that, hey, I might have the opportunity to play football after high school. I mean, after college, right? So coming from a you know Division two school, um, I wasn't the fastest guy. I, I felt like you know I didn't put up crazy numbers. Yeah, I, I was all conference and everything, but you know I had four interceptions. Um, I knew I had solid size, but I wasn't a blazer as far as you know speed. I'm you know a mid four or five guy. So um, I was like, you know what? Uh, someone's giving me an opportunity, they, they basically reached out to me and said, hey, I, you know, and it was a guy I, I knew from my hometown, and, you know, he was like, hey, if you, if you don't have any NFL or CFL books and you need a, a plan C, here's an opportunity for you. I can't guarantee anything. I can't guarantee that you make this team. I can't guarantee any of that. Only thing I can guarantee is you have a spot in camp, and what you do with it from there is up to you. So for me, it was like, okay, coming from a Division two school, where, you know, I know my options would be limited, like, coming out, like, if I, you know, I can go to these different regional combines or whatever, but I would have to run a 4-3 or 4-4, kind of really catch anybody's eye and get on their radar. Excuse me. So, um, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go straight to the arena league. So, I didn't even get to graduate yet at that time, and um, I left as soon as my senior year of high school uh, was over, and I went straight to the arena league. Um, I, I went straight home to train and get ready to prepare my mind, prepare my body, prepare my knowledge of the game um, for two months until camp started. So, yeah, that was how that whole thing worked. That's how I ended up in the AFL. Do you think that that time that you took to really study and um, refine your game has anything to do with where you're at right now? Like you're breaking down wide receivers and DBs. Um, do you think that has anything to do with the start of, wow, I really like breaking down this film? Nah, you know where that came from. <laughs> okay, so um, it's kind of it's kind of well. One, I'm just a, I just love football. Like I'm obsessed with football, and I've been like that my whole life, right? But when I was a kid, you know, I talked about to you about some of the things I went through growing up. Well, one one thing I had was a VCR, right? And um, I know the younger guys are like, "What's a VCR?" So I had a VCR, and what I would do is I would have these little tapes, and I would just record football games on them during the week. So I mean, during uh, on Sundays. Right, so you know I didn't have cable, so I would record like you know the Forty Niners on Sunday, and I would watch that throughout the week. Like that's what I would watch. Like okay, I'm gonna watch my Forty Nine game again. You know, Forty Nine was really good at that time. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, so like just the love of watching the game, like that 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 started then. Um, how I got into like like breaking down film or plays and things like that. It was really kind of unique because at the time I started doing it, which was 2000, I'd say 
late 2015 or early 2016, like around that time, you didn't see it. Like you, you see it everywhere now, right? You see all these different accounts of people um, posting videos and breaking down technique and, and things like that. When I first started doing it, I didn't see it anywhere else. And the only reason why I was doing it really was because um, I had got into training deep. In, right? That was something else I didn't see at that time. So you uh so yeah so you're breaking down defenses you with the San Antonio Talons going back to your AFL career um you had a good rookie year 70 tackles two forced fumbles three fumble recoveries three interceptions so you made your mark on the league right away and it was enough for the Jets to give you a look um and on March th- on March 1st you signed with the Jets uh you were in there with, with training camp with them uh you got a chance to not only uh see Darrell Rivas and Antonio Cromartie up close and personal, uh, but play with them. So first, take me into how it, how does it the process happen to get to San Antonio to the New York Jets, and also what was it like playing with probably one of the greatest cornerbacks of all time, Darrell Rivas? Yeah, so um, yeah, San Antonio, I got the amazing team. Um, I started every game, and I kind of started getting a little bit of attention from NFL teams, but not not much. Um, I had went through some different things where I got, like, arrested for uh, DUI and stuff like that. And um, I kind of – that whole thing almost kind of screwed up my whole opportunity with the NFL. Once the season ended, um, I was just in San Antonio just working at, like, Macy's. And uh, it, it was weird how it happened. I ended up signing this agent. And as soon as I signed him, uh, he got me a bunch of – looks from NFL teams and it was it was crazy how it happened like it was totally out of nowhere so I really wasn't prepared I hadn't been working out but um you know I, I have first had a workout with the New Orleans Saints uh, they didn't sign me because I didn't run fast enough 40 at that time so I was on the California I trained um, with the speed coach, and the Philadelphia Eagles flew me in it was uh, Chip Kelly at that time so he flew me in uh I when, when he flew me in I uh I ran a better 40 time, but I was just out of shape. And the way they set up the whole uh, workout, it just didn't work in my favor. Um, they, it was it was extremely cold in February. They had me work. They had me warm up, run my 40, and then they worked out two other guys, and then got to me. So there was like an hour break in between me warming up and running my 40, and then the time I started working out. So I, my body cooled down by that time, and I tried to stay warm, but it didn't work. So yeah, they didn't end up signing me, and then. The Jets flew me in, uh, just flew me in, worked me out. I, I, I read much better 45, better 452. Uh, and uh, I killed the field drills, which I knew I'd do that. And yeah, man, they, they just ended up signing me. So, so Gear was, was, was really cool. So the New York Jets, uh, it's like, uh, I walked up pretty cool. Like, you know, walked up from Marcus. I had watched a bunch of his YouTube stuff. Um, you know, while being in college, me being a longer corner like him, it was really cool being there with Revis. Um, and I, I knew Revis was really good. I knew he was shut down, but to kind of see him on all 22 kind of really opened my eyes to how good he really was. Like this dude was, I mean, I know we call it Revis Island, but he was really on the island. The thing with Revis, though, um, when I got there, he was there for a little bit during the OTAs, and he was traded to Tampa Bay. Mm. So a lot of people forget that. Like they're like, oh yeah, you were there with Revis, and they're like, yeah, I was there for a little bit with him. Um, worked out with him a few times, and then boom, he was traded to Tampa Bay Buccaneers for a first-round pick. So, um, uh, yeah, I had Kamari. I was able to see kind of just how he worked, how he prepared, prepared himself uh, and all that. And it was 
yeah, it was it was kind of surreal, you know, just being in that situation after all the hardships that I had gone through. So, after the Jets, you get back on with the AFL. Uh, you sign with the Portland Thunder. That's where you have your best year, um, and you made a real impact uh, for the Portland Thunder. Eleven interceptions, um, a forced fumble as well. So. Uh, Responsible for 12, turno- 12 turnovers as, as well as 45 tackles. Um, it seems like that was your best overall professional year. What really was able to come together and uh, click that year in Portland that made you have such a remarkable year? Um, I just had a different grind, a different mentality, and I, I didn't take it for granted. You know, just another opportunity. I, I actually was drafted number one of all um, in, that, in that arena being drafted. Uh, you know, my dad, when I was with the Jets, um, during training camp, uh, right before training camp, my, my dad passed away. And, you know, he was young, 48, no issues. And all of a sudden, he had some type of, like, silent heart attack and died. And Damn. it made me lose my um, love for the game. Um, not, not so much lose my love for the game, but just, like, it didn't seem important to me anymore. So, you know, you're at the bottom of the NFL roster. Like, you, you can't slip up like that. Like, you can't. Hey, football doesn't matter to me anymore, but I didn't prepare myself, like, mentally, um, you know, for the game. I, I really wasn't focused. It really threw me off, and it wasn't until I got drafted number one overall, and it was like, okay, boom. I snapped out of that fog, and I just got to work, and I was grinding, grinding, grinding. And um, I just said, man, when I get back on the field, like, I'm just going to tear it up. And, um, yeah, I just, boom, I just went out there. Um, it seemed like every game I was getting interceptions, it, it was uh, – it, 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 I felt the best that I ever felt in my life. Um, you know, I, I was just more mature, uh, you know, even more mature than when I was with the Jets. And I just knew, like, okay, I'm not going to take this opportunity for granted. And, uh, yeah, man, I, I did my thing. That that was a big year. That was a big year. I thought it would land me back in the NFL. And it didn't. It's weird how the NFL works. But, um, yeah, just the, the, the experience and, yeah, just doing that, man, it was it was awesome. Uh, and you were a Arena Bowl champion the next year with the San Jose Sabercats. So definitely left your mark on the Arena League uh, while you were in the Arena League. But, you know, all, as they say, all good things must come to an end. And with your last team, the San Jose Sabercats, was in 2004. I mean, I'm sorry, 2014. So take me after 2014. You're done with your playing days. Um, and when did you decide to get into analyzing film for wide receivers and DBs particularly? And when did you start your podcast? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it was weird how it happened, man. You know, I talked about earlier. I, I got into training that week. And, um, and um, so, like I was saying earlier, when I first started training athletes and doing those things, uh, I mean, like training defensive backs, I didn't see that. When I first started posting videos on Twitter, I didn't see people doing that. And the only reason why I did it was because I'm a 49er fan, and I would be watching the games, and I see everybody complaining, like, oh, the cornerback, he did this, the cornerback did that. So, and me, like, knowing the position, playing the position, I was like, well, I I see exactly why he's doing that. Why don't they know that? So then I was like, you know what? Let me start recording the plays on my phone and posting it to Twitter and explaining what's going on. Like, this is why this happened. So that's really how I got into it. And, um... Yeah, again, at the time, I, I didn't see anybody else posting videos of breaking down technique and things like that at that time uh, a few years ago. So, yeah, I started, yeah, I did that. And um, sure enough, people started hitting me like, hey, man, I really love your knowledge for the game. Do you want to write for us? And, you know, would you mind writing for us? And it was like a 49er blog, and I'm like, well, I'm not a writer. 
you guys want to talk about football? Like, that's great, but I, I don't I don't write. So they were like, okay, like, you know, that's cool too. So, um, you know, for, uh, Nothing But Niners were the first people to kind of come, and um, they hollered at me about that. And then another guy, my guy Dylan DeSimone, he reached out to me, and he had a really good background um, as far as uh, media and things like that, working for, like, uh, the Bay Area, NBC or whatever, whatever it's called. Um, and he had did editing for big guys like uh, Matt Mayoko and different people with, like, 49 feet writers. So um, he kind of reeled me in, and I ended up doing some writing for him. He got better and better. And from there, I just continued to push it and um, break down content, break down different things, and it ultimately led to me kind of having my own uh, podcast. That that's dope, man. So I mean, obviously, as a podcaster myself, I kind of got into the journey the same way, where I was just like, Yo, I'm, I'm talking to my friends about these sports, and I I've played all these sports on some level, uh, and you know, people started liking how I talked about sports. And <laughs> so it's it's funny how it's kind of the same story except different uh, different circumstances. Um, so some of the guys that I want to talk to you about in terms of uh, DBs and wide receivers in the breakdown there's i want to talk to you about some good guys about some bad guys but before i i start about that breaking down film is not the easiest thing in the world and you know you start you you start from a place everyone starts from a place where they don't know really what they're looking at and then if you're in a coach's uh if you're in a coach's film room that's where you kind of get the the ins and outs of what you're supposed to do so what is it that you're looking for when you're scouting a wide receiver or a defensive back or breaking them down? Let's start with wide receivers. Wide receivers in the league this are now are so athletic. And even the last receiver on a roster is one of the more athletic guys you'll see walking down the street. So what separates a great wide receiver from a guy who's going to be on the bubble of some rosters? You know, there's not much. Um, I always tell people, man, when I got to the NFL – there's a few freaks, like there's a few people, there are a few people on each side of the ball that's just like really different, but outside of that, everybody is just like, there's not much separation between the number two wide receiver on the team and the number, and the practice squad receiver on the team. A lot of it's just opportunity, um, there's some politics that plays into it, um, but there's not a whole lot of difference. So I think uh, ultimately you just have to know, you know, what it is that you want for that guy. You know, no two receivers are alike. Right. Oh, I don't want to say no two receivers are alike, but you know, depending on size. Uh, okay, uh, this is what makes some guys special. And you said that, like, oh, you know, it's not hard to. For me, it's easy. It's easy to see certain things. It's easy for me to break certain things down. Um, I don't expect. I don't expect a six-three, two hundred and twenty-pound receiver to move like a five-ten, hundred and eighty-pound receiver. So I think that's the first thing, kind of understanding like how certain guys move. Right, and you know what what helps what works for one guy might not work for another guy. Right now, when you when a guy is special, it's when that six three two hundred and twenty pound receiver can move like a five ten hundred eighty pound receiver. You know what I'm saying? That's when you know you have somebody special. You don't see it very often; it's very rare. But there's a guy Julio Jones. He's like that, right? Um, or when you have the five ten hundred eighty pound guy. But he plays like he's 6'3", 215 pounds, which is rare. But then, you know, that's the Odell Beckham, you know, I mean, he's 200 pounds, but that's the Odell. That's Antonio Brown, who, you know, you throw a jump ball to uh, Antonio Brown and he comes down with it like he's 6'3". So those are the special guys. But everybody else, man, they're really kind of, 
you know, is just kind of finding their niche and being in the right offense and being with a coordinator that can help them maximize their skill set. Uh, that's most of the NFL. So if you were to give uh, like a percentage from 1 to 100, what percentage do you think getting into the right circumstances and being drafted by the right team and having the right coach and having the right situation, what what percentage do you think that plays into having success in the NFL? I think it's about 80%. Wow, 80%. Damn, that's high. Yeah. So we see but we see bust, right? And a lot of times when you, when you see a bust, it's um there what well, is there's a couple things that factor into it. One is, did you go to a scheme that maximizes, you know, your potential? So that's, that's the first thing. Like, you know, if I get put into a scheme that doesn't work for me and they're trying to force me into this, because it like, it's like it me coming out, right? If a team was to uh, sign me and they were an off-man team, I would not have done well, no matter where it was, because I just wasn't that guy. But a team that was like, hey, we're looking for a press corner with this type of skill set. Now you maximize my potential. Now you give me every opportunity to actually be good, right? So teams, sometimes they draft guys um, to uh, especially high-end drafts, right? Because when, you, when you're drafting high, a lot of times you're just taking the athlete. And you want to use like, oh, well, this is a tremendous athlete. He's an elite athlete. We're going to do this with him. That's why you see so many first-round busts. And you see so many guys in later rounds pan out. Because those guys are more of, hey, this guy fits our scheme and what we want to do. Let's give him, give him an opportunity. And you see those guys uh, work out a lot. You see what I'm saying? So I, I, that's why you see a lot of that. Um, yeah, I hope that answered the question. But, yeah, yeah. That, that's why you see a lot of that. For sure. Someone that you mentioned, actually, in the situation that you mentioned earlier, Darrell Revis is, like, a great example. When he was on the Jets playing press man coverage, he was shut down best corner people were talking about in history. Then he gets traded to Tampa, and he's in that Tampa 2 zone style, and he really was a non-factor. And that defense didn't get any better because he wasn't in the right situation. He goes back to new, He goes back now uh, to covering men in New England, and all of a sudden he's an all-pro and a Super Bowl champion again. So even for the best ever, you know, the situation matters. It's, exactly. It, 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 it definitely matters. So that's why sometimes... Um, 49ers, they drafted guy Solomon Thomas, and they tried to put him at an edge rusher. And it's like, well, if you watch him at Stanford, he's not an edge rusher. <laughs> you know, he's just not. But you have the 49ers who draft him, you know, off of analytics. And, well, he has this type of arm length, and he has this kind of quickness and this kind of power. Hey, let's put him at the edge rusher, and he's going to work out because he has that athleticism. But it's like, hey, he's not an edge rusher. He showed at Stanford he, that's just something he's not good at. Now, if you want to force somebody into a position and just bank on athleticism, you typically don't want to do that with the number three overall pick. You know what I'm saying? But that's what teams do, and that's why you see some guys just not work out you know, at higher picks. Speaking of drafting and speaking of guys that are high picks. and Confidence, my bad. Sorry. And then you run their confidence. And once you run a guy's confidence, you know, that, that follows them no matter where they go, and then they just end up being like another guy who was just a bust. Because now it's like, man, I was forced to do this uh, thing. My, my confidence is ruined now because I didn't play well. I have everybody telling me I'm not good. I suck. Um, I wasn't worth the money. And their confidence just gets shot. And it's kind of hard to recover from that. Sorry yeah. about that. No, it's all good. Like, one, Yeah, you're right. Once your confidence is shot, that's kind of the end of the line for anything in life, especially in sports. Um, but like I was saying before, another guy that's 
athletically gifted, but you saw him fall in the draft because people started uh, doubting what he can do, uh, is wide receiver DK Metcalf, one of the most polarizing figures in the game right now. You either love DK or you hate DK. From your professional perspective, does DK Metcalf have a chance to be a great player in the NFL? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I saw it, and I, I really liked what I saw. Uh, before he went to the combine, I'm watching his film, and I'm talking to my nothing but nothing guys, and I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm, I, I finally watched this guy, DK Metcalf, and I was like, he doesn't have the big time numbers, but I was like, this dude is kind of special. And they're like, no, no. I'm like, dude, he's going to run a 4-3. No, I cut. There's no way he runs a 4-3. Um, he, he uh, what they say? He's 6'3", he's 6'4", 230 pounds. No way he runs a 4-3. And I was like, dude, he ran away from this cornerback right here while looking back for the ball, and the cornerback was struggling to keep up. I said, that lets me know right there, this dude is, like, fast on a yeah, different side. Yeah, that's a bad level. man. And, yeah, you, you typically, if I'm, typically it's like, oh, okay, if I beat someone off the line and I'm looking straight and I'm in my drive phase and I'm running, um, that's when I'm, like, you know, fast. Uh, if I'm looking back at the ball, I typically slow down. Well, he was looking back for the ball, but was still running just as fast. Um, so when I saw that, I was like, nah, this dude's speed is on a different level. And sure enough, he you know ran a 4-3. So I liked him before then. Now, is he a little stiff? Um, yes. I, I think the whole route tree thing is definitely overblown. Mm-hmm. Ole Miss only ran a few routes. I don't think they only ran a few routes because um, uh, DK McCaff is a little stiffer. I think they only ran a few routes because that was an offense. The outside guys on both sides, they did the same thing. Five-yard stops, 10-yard stops, go routes. And a lot of it was predicated off of the cornerback. I think they were reading the corner. Is like, okay, if I beat him off the line of scrimmage and I have a step on him, I'm going to run and go. If I don't beat him off the line of scrimmage, I'm going to stop. And the, corner, and the quarterback is just reading the receivers. And the whole offense, to me, what I saw was they worked, it worked inside out. So you see um, A.J. Brown with a ton of catches and yards and stuff like that, right? A lot of it was predicated on the offense they run inside because those are the easier um, completions for a quarterback to make, you know, inside uh, breaking a route. Um, it worked inside to out. And he also caught, like, a ton of bubble screens and stuff like that. So people look at it and it's like, well, he wasn't even the most productive player in his offense. And it's like, well, yeah, but, but, but I and if you look at it, it's not because of ability. Um, he played against Ole Miss, and everybody goes that game. I mean, uh, LSU, and it's like, well, Greedy Williams, shut him down. And it's like, well, yeah, look at what they did with him. Um, they ran that same five-yard, ten-yard stops, and goal route. And Greedy Williams, who watches film, LSU, who watches film, I'm pretty sure they looked at that and said, hey, everything he did vertically, B. Williams, you run in the four-threes as well, but don't worry about any of that. He's not going to threaten you any other way. D.K. McCabe did not run anything um, um, outside of a vertical route until one minute left in the third quarter where he finally ran a slant. All right. So I, when I was watching him, I think I watched him a little different than other people did. And I just kind of looked at his circumstances. Then, you know, just kind of, hey, maybe he takes one or two mini steps um, at the top of a 15-yard curl. All right. I know exactly how I would use him. So when I saw him get drafted, when I saw him get drafted to Seattle, I was really upset because I knew exactly what – I know what's going to come from that. I, I think he's – Right away, going to be a, a really good receiver there. I wouldn't be surprised if he went for a thousand yards. I think as long as he plays with Russell Wilson, I'd say by year three, you could see a fourteen hundred yard uh, receiver 
because if they're vertical playing offense, they're going to have them run deep crossers. Um, and there's no better deep ball thrower in the game than Russell Wilson. And, and as far as taking a step or two uh, more than the average person, his vertical threat is enough to get guys going upfield to where maybe he doesn't stop on a dime, but he's going to stop in enough time to you know get a ball and be able to do some things with it. So um, I, I think he's going to be really good. He reminds me a lot of uh, Josh Gordon. Um, you know, where he's a little stiff, um, but still definitely a, a, a good uh, uh, vertical threat uh, down the field. I think if he, if he can be Josh Gordon while Josh Gordon is on the field, I think that's going to count as a win for everybody, that's for sure. And I agree with you with that Seattle offense, especially because with a Brian Schottenheimer offense, they're so run heavy that I can't think of a better receiver that you'd want on the field to hit a play-action go route than DK Metcalf. You know, so right. I, th- I yeah, think it's going to be really gonna good. Be, he's going to be just fine in that offense. I think it was overblown. Now, when I asked him to run a double move, if you have an offense that's predicated more on really um, super uh, precise route running, um, double moves, post corners, corner post, things like that, then I would say, like, yeah, DK McCaffrey is desired for your offense. But if it's an offense like, you know, really what I see with Kyle Shanahan and what he does with Marquise Goodwin, who I think Marquise Goodwin is like a smaller size of DK Metcalf, a little stiffer. You don't see a whole lot of slant. Um, you don't see a whole lot of uh, variety in the route tree, but you know he still was almost he still almost had a thousand yards for uh, Shanahan in that first year with a lot of vertically pushing routes. Um, you know, deep in deep, you know, things where okay, my route running doesn't have to be the most precise, but um, I'm going to beat guys to a spot and do the rest with my athleticism. I think. Uh, you'll see that with, with, with McCaff. I think people expected McCaff to look like, say, uh, you know, they want him to look like a Hollywood Brown or something, you know, oh, really quick, like on his feet, in and out of his breaks, and he's just not going to look like that. He, he's 6'3", 230 pounds. He, he's not Julio Jones, but I think he has big-time ability to where if you're any type of good offensive coordinator, you'll know exactly how to put him into your, uh, your scheme. Let's talk about another guy, a different guy, who ended up being uh, the second wide receiver off the board, but he's kind of the opposite of DK Metcalf. He didn't blow people away with his athleticism. Uh, He's not considered that deep threat, and that's Nikhil Harry of the Patriots. Um, When you look at Nikhil Harry of the Patriots, you... You see a guy where, if first of all, if Bill Belichick trusts in you and he picks you as an offensive skill player in the first round, it automatically makes me think different of you. What do you think about Nikhil Harry? Do you think that um, he could be successful? Yeah, see, I, I didn't care for Nikhil Harry. Um, I thought that he, uh, I think he is good. You know, one thing I think I got to do with kind of DK McCaffrey, I think he brings a little bit more because he beats press so easily. But you, we have to um, look at what they are good at and kind of use them for that as well. So, Nikhil here, what he is good at is he's solid um, in the slot, right? Um, he's really good at contested catch, 50-50 balls, which I think he's probably the best in the draft at that. Um, so, when we talk about Nikhil Harry and what he's good at, really good at those things. What he's not good at and what I saw and what would trap him in my heart he was in the top five where he struggled with separation big time. I thought he struggled with a variety of releases. That might be something that he can work with. Um, but he, I think he's a little stiffer than people think. He, he was pretty stiff to me, in my opinion. Um, I thought when cornerbacks weren't scared of him, they, they like, played extremely well. Like, they just, like, pretty much locked him up. He is going to get that 50-50 ball here and there. 
But I just thought, like, you know, my initial uh, comp for him was Des Bryant. But when I really dug in there and really watched him over and over and over, I said, no, nah, this isn't Des Bryant. This is more 28-year-old Des Bryant than 21-year-old Des Bryant. So I think he has a lot to work on. Uh, it did raise an eyebrow for me when I saw Bill Belichick draft him. But then I came back to Earth and I was like, well, Bill Belichick, his track history on receivers hasn't been very good, right? I mean, what receiver have they drafted that's worked out? So I always say, hey, anybody, you know, it only takes one to kind of change that narrative. But uh, Nikhil Harry, to me, he, he, in the big slot role, I think he can be efficient. I didn't think he was very good as an outside receiver. I thought he was kind of really just, it has to be a 50-50 ball. If it's not that, he's really not beating guys vertically. He's really not beating guys with uh, right route precision. So, yeah, there, there were a lot that kind of made it to where I, I wouldn't take him in the first round, and I was kind of surprised to see him go uh, with some of the other guys. That's a good point with Bill Belichick and wide receivers and him not having success, especially considering like the the best wide receiver on his team right now was a quarterback in college. So he really doesn't. So maybe if he drafts quarterbacks to play wide receiver, he'll have a little more success. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it only takes one because I, I don't like doing that. You know, people. Oh, well, um, every quarterback from USC, good old USC, they're not. You know, they don't pan out in the NFL. But it takes one. You know, so I don't want to say like, well, he has. You know, his track record isn't. You know. uh that that means that Nikhil Harry's not going to be good, yeah. right? I, I don't want to say that, but I will say I, I wouldn't change my opinion on on Nikhil Harry because the Patriots drafted him. So let's shift over from wide receivers to cornerbacks. Your specialty. Um, so looking at quarterback cornerbacks, excuse me, on film, like you said, super uh, super in terms of everyone kind of being the same size and the same athleticism, super similar. Uh, what is it that makes a cornerback, on the other hand, stick out among the rest of them? Uh, to me, the first thing I look for is, you know, just fluidity, right? And I tie fluidity up, you know, it's, it means a few different things, right? It's, uh, it's their hips, it's their, uh, their feet, uh, feet quickness, um, the ability to get in and out of your breaks, um, change the direction. I'm typically able to see all of that in a matter of a few minutes watching their film. So um, that that's the first thing that I look for with cornerbacks. I, I look for what are his movement skills. And then from there, I look at what are his traits? What are his good traits as far as, you know, how well does he play the ball in the air? What what can what can uh, improve? Hey, what things will, will he struggle with to improve? And it really doesn't take me a whole lot to figure that out as soon as I turn somebody's film on. The thing is seeing, hey, what things are consistent or aren't consistent. And um, that kind of determines kind of where I have guys. You know, there, there's guys where, you know, ideally I would like a guy that's, you know, six foot, 195 pounds, and, you know, he's just sticky, great feet, change of direction, all that, right? But sometimes it comes in a smaller package. Sometimes it's Denzel Ward, and... I, you know, I don't care what scheme I was in. I would take Denzel Ward um, as my, uh, as a potential cornerback one because his skill set. Same with Jair Alexander. I don't care that he's only 5'10". You know, his film shows he does every single thing that I want him to do. So those, those are things that I think some people, they fall in love with. The 6 to die. You know, I was a bigger corner as well. Me, I just look at it as, can guy cover? And that's all I care about. Can he cover? Is he sticky? If he is shorter, I would like him to be able to run a little bit uh, faster, right? 
Um, I would, especially, you know, depending on the scheme, if I run more of a single high safety scheme, um, I would like him to be a little stickier, uh, have a little bit more vertical speed. But, yeah, man, I, I, I think the biggest thing that I look at, people fall in love with these big corners, and I was, you know, obviously I was one of them, but can the guy cover? Like, that's all I care about. So the first thing I look at is, can he cover? Does he have traits? Does he have good feet, hips, you know, and fluidity? Speaking of Denzel Ward, the the Browns were killed for that pick in the beginning. Everyone wanted Bradley Chubb, um, but it only took one year. And look, corners in their rookie years aren't usually good. So the fact that Denzel Ward was so good in his rookie year, it gives definitely a, a, a really nice outlook for his career. Now, when you're talking about the best cornerback in the league, um, he could be that one day. But right now, for the first time in a while, I feel like it's a really open debate. Like, there's no guy who sticks out above and beyond the rest off the top of the head. So, I'm going to ask you this. Who do you think the best cornerback in the NFL is right now? Jalen Ramsey. Jalen Ramsey. Okay, tell, tell me why. He showed up in an armored truck. That guy's wilding a little bit, man. <laughs> but he can play. He's a, he's a character. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes with these guys, you know, especially defensive backs, uh, they're a little different sometimes. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, he's a character, but... You know, with him, you know, to be the size that he is and be able to move how he does and to be able to guard receivers, you know, like at that size, you know, whether it's a uh, 5'10", 180-pound receiver or if it's a 6'3", 220-pound receiver, um, he's very versatile. He can he follows guys, and I think that's why sometimes, you know, you see these guys with these high passer ratings against them. I mean, like, you know, low passer ratings against them. Uh, he only gave up this many yards on this many targets and the pass rating against them is super low. But it's like, are those guys following guys no matter where guys go? You look at uh, Stephon Gilmore, you look at Jalen Ramsey, those guys follow receivers. You know, it, okay, Ramsey's with, okay, Hopkins, this man do all game. Now, Hopkins is going to get his too, right? Because he's one of the best receivers in the league, if not the best, right? So, you know, Ramsey's numbers. Um, as far as pass rating against them, PFF numbers, things like that, might not be as high as other guys, but he has the toughest challenges. Same with Stephon Gilmore. Gilmore has the toughest challenges. He's following teams. Look at him on – I mean, he he blanked uh, Brandon Cooks in the Super Bowl. No matter where Cooks was, Gilmore was right there. right? And there's a lot of DBs that don't do that. Richard Sherman, he plays for my Niners now. Sherman stayed on the left side. Sherman didn't play outside – Sherman played, I'd say, 98% of his snaps at left corner for the 49ers last year. Same thing he did in Seattle. He played, I'd say, like 98% of his snaps at left corner. Um, you know, he wasn't following guys. There was a whole game against the Packers one year in 2014 where, you know, he didn't get targeted for an entire game. My thing is, if you're following the best receiver around, it's impossible to not get targeted, targeted for an entire game. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, there's some things like that where you have to take in consideration with guys' numbers and stuff. But as far as just ability, um, the task that this guy takes on, Jalen Ramsey, to me, he's the best receiver, I mean, best cornerback in the NFL. Who's your favorite rookie cornerback coming out of the draft, coming into the NFL this year? You know what? This year, more than any other year, I didn't really have, like, a clear-cut favorite. Yeah, it was I a little soft at corner this year. Huh? It was a little soft at corner this year compared to other years, I feel like. Yeah, there was a guy that I really liked, head and shoulders above everybody else, and he elected to stay for his senior year. That was Bryce Hall. I, I really loved Bryce Hall. Everything about what I saw in his film, and I don't know if somebody else advised him to stay another year or if he just wanted to stay for education purposes. 
But um, Bryce Hall, that was my favorite. Now, outside of him, um, I thought that the CB1 was the only thing I didn't know was hey, okay, you're 5'10", you just charms. I love your film. I love your zone abilities. Great. One of the best zone eyes I've ever seen. Um, how well do you run? Because on film, you guys play a lot of zone, and I, I haven't seen people challenge him vertically because of the soft defense that they run. And uh, he went to the combine and ran a 4-5-5, five, five, and to me, when you know, depending on the scheme you go to, you might go to like a, a team that runs more single high safety you're going, to be able to have, you're going to have to be able to run, right? And that was one thing that I had a question mark with him on. So outside of him, if he would have ran faster like 4-3, then I would have 100%, hey, that guy needs to be a top 15 pick. But when he ran a little bit slower, it was like, okay, I love him. I'm still worried about his speed as I was because I didn't see it in the games when I was watching Washington. But I do think he has big-time ability, so I think that the Cardinals got a really good cornerback. Uh. But he can be, he can end up being uh, Mike Hughes uh, or, or Denzel Ward or something, right? Or he can end up being uh, Vernon Hargraves, who wasn't the fastest guy, and we've seen him struggle in the NFL. Right. You know? So, Eric Crocker, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for breaking down this. If you want to uh, hear more about Eric Crocker breaking down DBs and uh, and wide receivers, tell him where to find you, man. Um, you guys can follow me, uh, follow me on Twitter at Eric underscore Crocker. Um, also, my podcast page on Twitter um, is at Press Cub Podcast. All right, so at Press Cub Podcast. Um, tons of content pretty much daily. Um, it's been blowing up fast, man. I say, and I've only had that account for three months, and I'm, um, you know, pushing forty five hundred followers, and every day is growing, and it's pretty cool to kind of see the interactions and how people, how other people look at them, you know, because everybody views. Uh, film different so yeah it's pretty cool so yeah make sure you guys follow both those pages for sure Eric Crocker thank you so much for your time um, if you want to follow me or follow the guys it's at Veterans Minimum on Twitter at Veterans Minimum uh, at Tim Patrop on Twitter also if you're feeling real 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 frisky you know how that goes um, and yeah that's it thank you again Eric Crocker for your time interesting story great time um, I could tell you know I could tell how much you love football just by how you break down those those wide receivers and those cornerbacks, man. I could just tell when I, when I asked you about them, your voice just just went up a couple octaves. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm more passionate about football than my own story. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing your story and your football story with us. Uh, until next time, take it easy. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.